part two of book one of on the laws by marcus tullius cicero translated by charles duke young this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards part two of book one atticus o oh, ye immortal gods to what a distance back are you tracing the principles of justice however you are discoursing in such a style that i will not show any impatience to hear what i expect you to say on the civil law but i will listen patiently even if you spend the whole day in this kind of discourse for assuredly these which perhaps you are embracing in your argument for the sake of others are grander topics than even the subject itself for which they prepare the way marcus you may well describe these topics as grand which we are now briefly discussing but of all the questions which are ever the subject of discussion among learned men there is none which it is more important thoroughly to understand than this that man is born for justice and that law and equity have not been established by opinion but by nature this truth will become still more apparent if we investigate the nature of human association and society for there is no one thing so like or so equal to another as in every instance man is to man and if the corruption of customs and the variation of opinions did not induce an imbecility of minds and turn them aside from the course of nature no one would more nearly resemble himself than all men would resemble all men therefore whatever definition we give of man will be applicable to the whole human race and this is a good argument that there is no dissimilarity of kind among men because if this were the case one definition could not include all men in fact reason which alone gives us so many advantages over beasts by means of which we conjecture argue refute discourse and accomplish and conclude our designs is assuredly common to all men for the faculty of acquiring knowledge is similar in all human minds though the knowledge itself may be endlessly diversified by the same senses we all perceive the same objects and those things which move the senses at all do move in the same way the senses of all men and those first rude elements of intelligence which as i before observed are the earliest developments of thought are similarly impressed upon all men and that faculty of speech which is the interpreter of the mind agrees in the ideas which it conveys though it may differ in the words by which it expresses them and therefore there exists not a man in any nation who if he adopts nature for his guide may not arrive at virtue nor is this resemblance which all men bear to each other remarkable in those things only which are in accordance with right reason but also in errors for all men alike are captivated by pleasure which although it is a temptation to what is disgraceful nevertheless bears some resemblance to natural good for as by its delicacy and sweetness it is delightful 
it is through a mistake of the intellect adopted as something salutary and by an error scarcely less universal we shun death as if it were a dissolution of nature and cling to life because it keeps us in that existence in which we were born thus likewise we consider pain as one of the greatest evils not only on account of its present asperity but also because it seems the precursor of mortality again on account of the apparent resemblance between renown with honour those men appear to us happy who are honoured and miserable who happen to be inglorious in like manner our minds are all similarly susceptible of inquietudes joys desires and fears nor if different men have different opinions does it follow that those who deify dogs and cats do not labour under superstition equally with other nations though they may differ from them in the forms of its manifestation again what nation is there which has not a regard for kindness benignity gratitude and mindfulness of benefits what nation is there in which arrogance malice cruelty and unthankfulness are not reprobated and detested and while this uniformity of opinions proves that the whole race of mankind is united together the last point is that a system of living properly makes men better if what i have said meets your approbation i will proceed or if any doubts occur to you we had better clear them up first atticus there is nothing which strikes us if i may reply for both of us marcus it follows then that nature made us just that we might share our goods with each other and supply each other's wants you observe in this discussion whenever i speak of nature i mean nature in its genuine purity but that there is in fact such corruption engendered by evil customs that the sparks as it were of virtue which have been given by nature are extinguished and that antagonist vices arise around it and become strengthened but if as nature prompts them to men would with deliberate judgment in the words of the poet quote, being men think nothing that concerns mankind indifferent to them close quote, then would justice be cultivated equally by all for to those to whom nature has given reason she has also given right reason and therefore also law which is nothing else than right reason enjoining what is good and forbidding what is evil and if nature has given us law she hath also given us right but she has bestowed reason on all therefore right has been bestowed on all and therefore did socrates deservedly execrate the man who first drew a distinction between utility and nature for he used to complain that this error was the source of all human vices to which this sentence of pythagoras refers quote, the things belonging to friends are common close quote, and that other quote, friendly equality close quote. from whence it appears 
that when a wise man has displayed this benevolence which is so extensively and widely diffused towards one who is endowed with equal virtue then that phenomenon takes place which is altogether incredible to some people but which is a necessary consequence that he loves himself not more dearly than he loves his friend for how can a difference of interests arise where all interests are similar if there could be ever so minute a difference of interests then there would be an end of even the nature of friendship the real meaning of which is such that there is no friendship at all the moment that a person prefers anything happening to himself rather than to his friend now these preliminary remarks have been put forward as a preparation for the rest of our discourse and argument in order that you may more easily understand that nature herself is the foundation of justice and when i have explained this a little more at large then i will proceed to the consideration of that civil law from which all these arguments of mine are derived quintus then you have not much to add my brother for the arguments you have already used have sufficiently proved to atticus or at all events to me that nature is the fountain of justice atticus how could i maintain any other opinion since you have now established these points first that we have been provided as we are and adorned by the gifts of the gods secondly that all mankind have but one similar and common principle of living together and lastly that all men are bound together by a certain natural indulgence and affection as well as social rights and as we have rightly as i think admitted the truth of these principles how can we with any consistency separate from nature that law and justice which are her moral developments marcus you are quite right and that is the proper view of the case but in conformity with the method of philosophers i do not mean the older sages of philosophy but those modern ones who have erected a magazine as it were of wisdom those questions which were formerly discussed loosely and unconstrainedly are now examined with strictness and distinctness nor will these men allow that we have done justice to the subject which we have now before us unless we demonstrate in a distinct discussion that right is a part of nature atticus you seem to have renounced your liberty in debate my cicero or are you become a man who in discussion rather follows the authority of others than develops his individual sentiments marcus not always atticus but you see what the line of this present conversation is and how the main object of this whole discussion is to strengthen the foundation of commonwealths to establish their forces and to benefit their population i am therefore particularly anxious to avoid arguments which have not been thoroughly examined and carefully considered not that i expect to demonstrate my doctrine to the satisfaction of all men for that is impossible but i hope to do so to that of those who think that all just and honourable things deserve to be cultivated even for their own sake 
and that nothing whatever can be properly called a good which is not intrinsically praiseworthy or at least that there can exist no great good whatever which is truly laudable on its own account all the philosophers who flourished in the old academy with speusippus xenocrates and polemon or those that followed aristotle and theophrastus agreeing with them in doctrine though they might differ in their method of explaining it whether like zeno they preserved the same principles while they changed the terms of exposition or whether like ariston they supported that difficult and arduous sect now generally scattered and confuted which supposed that with the exception of virtue and vice all other things were completely equal and indifferent all these have adopted the principles which i have been explaining but those who indulge their appetites and pamper their passions and who estimate all the objects of their pursuit or avoidance in life by pleasure and pain even if they speak truth for there is no need of raising the question here we may still desire to be content with talking in their own gardens and entreat them to retire for a while from all connection with the state of which they know nothing and have never wished to know anything as to that new academy of which arcesilas and carneades are the leaders and who attack all sects and parties we will implore them not to interrupt us in our present discussion for if they enter upon these subjects which to us appear to be settled and arranged with sufficient accuracy and learning they will do great mischief but i would rather pacify them and do not dare to order them off for in questions of this nature we have made expiation without such fumigations as theirs but there is no expiation for the crimes and impieties of men the guilty therefore must pay the penalty and bear the punishment not so much those punishments inflicted by courts of justice which were not always in being do not exist at present in many places and even where established are frequently biased and partial but those of conscience while the furies pursue and torment them not with burning torches as the poets feign but with remorse of conscience and the tortures arising from guilt but were it the fear of punishment and not the nature of the thing itself that ought to restrain mankind from wickedness what i would ask could give villains the least uneasiness abstracting from all fears of this kind and yet none of them was ever so audaciously impudent but what he either denied that the action in question had been committed by him or pretended some cause or other for his just indignation or sought a defence of his deed in some right of nature and if the wicked dare to appeal to this principle with what respect ought not good men to treat them but if either direct punishment or the fear of it be what deters men from a vicious and criminal course of life and not the turpitude of the thing itself then none can be guilty of injustice 
and the greatest offenders ought rather to be called imprudent than wicked on the other hand those among us who are determined to the practice of goodness not by its own intrinsic excellence but for the sake of some private advantage are cunning rather than good men for what will not that man do in the dark who fears nothing but a witness and a judge should he meet a solitary individual in a desert place whom he can rob of a large sum of money and altogether unable to defend himself from being robbed how will he behave in such a case our man who is just and honourable from principle and the nature of the thing itself will converse with the stranger assist him and show him the way but he who does nothing for the sake of another and measures everything by the advantage it brings to itself it is obvious i suppose how such a one will act and should he deny that he would kill the man or rob him of his treasure his reason for this cannot be that he apprehends there is any moral turpitude in such actions but only because he is afraid of a discovery that is to say that bad consequences will thence ensue a sentiment this at which not only learned men but even clowns must blush it is therefore an absurd extravagance in some philosophers to assert that all things are necessarily just which are established by the civil laws and the institutions of nations are then the laws of tyrants just simply because they are laws suppose the thirty tyrants of athens had imposed certain laws on the athenians or suppose again that these athenians were delighted with these tyrannical laws would these laws on that account have been considered just for my own part i do not think such laws deserve any greater estimation than that passed during our own interregnum which ordained that the dictator should be empowered to put to death with impunity whatever citizens he pleased without hearing them in their own defence for there is but one essential justice which cements society and one law which establishes this justice this law is right reason which is the true rule of all commandments and prohibitions whoever neglects this law whether written or unwritten is necessarily unjust and wicked but if justice consists in submission to written laws and national customs and if as the same school affirms everything must be measured by utility alone he who thinks that such conduct will be advantageous to him will neglect the laws and break them if it is in his power and the consequence is that real justice has really no existence if it have not one by nature and if that which is established as such on account of utility is overturned by some other utility but if nature does not ratify law then all the virtues may lose their sway for what becomes of generosity patriotism or friendship where will the desire of benefiting our neighbours or the gratitude that acknowledges kindness be able to exist at all 
for all these virtues proceed from our natural inclination to love mankind and this is the true basis of justice and without this not only the mutual charities of men but the religious services of the gods would be at an end for these are preserved as i imagine rather by the natural sympathy which subsists between divine and human beings than by mere fear and timidity but if the will of the people the decrees of the senate the adjudications of magistrates were sufficient to establish rights then it might become right to rob right to commit adultery right to substitute forged wills if such conduct were sanctioned by the votes or decrees of the multitude but if the opinions and suffrages of foolish men had sufficient weight to outbalance the nature of things then why should they not determine among them that what is essentially bad and pernicious should henceforth pass for good and beneficial or why since law can make right out of injustice should it not also be able to change evil into good but we have no other rule by which we may be capable of distinguishing between a good or a bad law than that of nature nor is it only right and wrong which are discriminated by nature but generally all that is honourable is by this means distinguished from all that is shameful for common sense has impressed in our minds the first principles of things and has given us a general acquaintance with them by which we connect with virtue every honourable quality and with vice all that is disgraceful but to think that these differences exist only in opinion and not in nature is the part of an idiot for even the virtue of a tree or a horse in which expression there is an abuse of terms does not exist in our opinion only but in nature and if that is the case then what is honourable and disgraceful must also be discriminated by nature for if opinion could determine respecting the character of universal virtue it might also decide respecting particular or partial virtues but who will dare to determine that a man is prudent and cautious not from his general conduct but from some external appearances for virtue evidently consists in perfect reason and this certainly resides in nature therefore so does all honour and honesty in the same way for as what is true and false creditable and discreditable is judged of rather by their essential qualities than their external relations so the consistent and perpetual course of life which is virtue and the inconsistency of life which is vice are judged of according to their own nature and that inconstancy must necessarily be vicious we form an estimate of the opinions of youths but not by their opinions those virtues and vices which reside in their moral natures must not be measured by opinions 
and so of all moral qualities we must discriminate between honourable and dishonourable by reference to the essential nature of the things themselves the good we commend must needs contain in itself some thing commendable for as i before stated goodness is not a mode of opinion but of nature for if it were otherwise opinion alone might constitute virtue and happiness which is the most absurd of suppositions and since we judge of good and evil by their nature and since good and evil are the first principles of nature certainly we should judge in the same manner of all honourable and all shameful things referring them all to the law of nature but we are often too much disturbed by the dissensions of men and the variation of opinions and because the same thing does not happen with reference to our senses we look upon them as certain by nature those objects indeed which sometimes present to us one appearance sometimes another and which do not always appear to the same people in the same way we term fictions of the senses but it is far otherwise for neither parent nor nurse nor master nor poet nor drama deceive our senses nor do popular prejudices seduce them from the truth but all kinds of snares are laid for the mind either by those errors which i have just enumerated which taking possession of the young and uneducated imbue them deeply and bend them any way they please or by that pleasure which is the imitator of goodness being thoroughly and closely implicated with all our senses the prolific mother of all evils for she so corrupts us by her blandishments that we no longer perceive some things which are essentially excellent because they have none of this deliciousness and pruriency it follows that i may now sum up the whole of this argument by asserting as is plain to every one from these positions which have been already laid down that all right and all that is honourable is to be sought for its own sake in truth all virtuous men love justice and equity for what they are in themselves nor is it like a good man to make a mistake and love that which does not deserve their affection right therefore is desirable and deserving to be cultivated for its own sake and if this be true of right it must be true also of justice what then shall we say of liberality is it exercised gratuitously or does it covet some reward and recompense if a man does good without expecting any recompense for his kindness then it is gratuitous if he does expect compensation it is a mere matter of traffic nor is there any doubt that he who truly deserves the reputation of a generous and kind-hearted man is thinking of his duty not of his interest in the same way the virtue of justice demands neither emolument nor salary and therefore we desire it for its own sake and the case of all the moral virtues is the same and so is the opinion formed of them besides this 
if we weigh virtue by the mere utility and profit that attend it and not by its own merit the one virtue which results from such an estimate will be in fact a species of vice for the more a man refers all his actions especially to his own advantage the further he recedes from probity so that they who measure virtue by profit acknowledge no other virtue than this which is a kind of vice for who can be called benevolent if no one ever acts kindly for the sake of another and where are we to find a grateful person if those who are disposed to be so can find no benefactor to whom they can show gratitude what will become of sacred friendship if we are not to love our friend for his own sake with all our heart and soul as people say if we are even to desert and discard him as soon as we despair of deriving any further assistance or advantage from him what can be imagined more inhuman than this conduct but if friendship ought rather to be cultivated on its own account so also for the same reason are society equality and justice desirable for their own sakes if this be not so then there can be no such thing as justice at all for the most unjust thing of all is to seek a reward for one's just conduct what then shall we say of temperance sobriety continence modesty bashfulness and chastity is it the fear of infamy or the dread of judgments and penalties which prevent men from being intemperate and dissolute do men then live in innocence and moderation only to be well spoken of and to acquire a certain fair reputation modest men blush even to speak of indelicacy and i am greatly ashamed of those philosophers who assert that there are no vices to be avoided but those which the laws have branded with infamy for what shall i say can we call those persons truly chaste who abstain from adultery merely for the fear of public exposure and that disgrace which is only one of its many evil consequences for what can be either praised or blamed with reason if you depart from that great law and rule of nature which makes the difference between right and wrong shall corporal defects if they are remarkable shock our sensibilities and shall those of the soul make no impression on us of the soul i say whose turpitude is so evidently proved by its vices for what is there more hideous than avarice more brutal than lust more contemptible than cowardice more base than stupidity and folly well then are we to call those persons unhappy who are conspicuous for one or more of these on account of some injuries or disgraces or sufferings to which they are exposed or on account of the moral baseness of their sins and we may apply the same test in the opposite way to those who are distinguished for their virtue lastly if virtue be sought for on account of some other things it necessarily follows that there is something better than virtue is it money then is it fame or beauty or health all of which appear of little value to us when we possess them nor can it be by any possibility certainly known how long they will last or is it what it is shameful even to utter that basest of all 
pleasure surely not for it is in the contempt and disdain of pleasure that virtue is most conspicuous do not you see what a long series of facts and arguments i have brought forward and how perfect is the connection between one and another i should have proceeded further still if i had not kept myself in check quintus to what point do your arguments tend my brother for i would willingly go hand in hand with you through this discussion marcus the point they bear on is the moral end of our actions to which all things are to be referred and for the sake of which all things are to be undertaken this subject is however one of great controversy and full of question among the learned yet one that must some day or other be decided atticus how can that be done since gellius is no longer alive quintus what is that to the purpose atticus because when i was at athens i recollect hearing from my friend phaedrus that your friend gellius when he came as proconsul into greece after his praetorship assembled all the philosophers who were at that time at athens in one spot and very earnestly pressed upon them his advice that they should endeavour to come to some unanimous agreement in their controversies urging that if they were so disposed as to be unwilling to spend their whole lives in discord an agreement might be made and at the same time he promised them his best assistance if this scheme of mutual conciliation and concession met their views marcus your story is amusing enough my atticus and it has often excited much merriment but indeed i should very gladly be appointed mediator between the ancient academy and the stoics atticus how can you think of such a thing marcus because they differ on one point only and agree to admiration in all the rest atticus what do they contend about one point of debate only marcus yes i think they have only a single issue so far as concerns this question of morals inasmuch as the ancient academicians are unanimously agreed that the true good is that which is in accordance with nature and is such that we may be assisted in life by it the stoics on the other hand allow of no good but what is honourable atticus this is indeed a very insignificant controversy and not such as to account for their general opposition marcus you are quite right if it were the thing itself on which they differed rather than the terms atticus you then rather agree with my friend antiochus with whom i was living for i will not venture to call him my master it was he who at one time almost persuaded me to desert my epicurean gardens and led me by gentle steps to the academy marcus this antiochus was a wise and clever man and highly accomplished in his way he was as you know a great friend of mine and i shall presently examine whether i agree with him in all respects or not this i am sure of that the whole of that controversy might easily be settled atticus why do you prosecute this inquiry marcus because if 
as ariston of chios pretended he were to say that there is no other good than the honourable and no other evil than the dishonourable that all other things are altogether indifferent and that their presence or absence are of no kind of consequence then zeno would be departing very far from xenocrates aristotle and all the school of plato and there would be an entire difference between them respecting a principle of the greatest importance and about the whole course of life but now when he affirms that to be the only good which the ancients asserted to be the chief good namely honour and its opposite disgrace which they called the chief evil the only evil and when he calls riches health and beauty only advantages not goods and poverty grief and pain only inconveniences not evils he in fact agrees in opinion with xenocrates and aristotle though he expresses himself in different terms from this difference not respecting things but words the controversy concerning moral ends arose in relation to which inasmuch as our roman law of the twelve tables has granted a neutral space of five feet wide between the territories of different landlords we will not allow the venerable estate of the academy to be trespassed on by this crafty stoic and though the mamelian law appointed but one surveyor to determine the rights of these neutral spaces in this ethical question all three of us will undertake to arbitrate respecting the moral ends of philosophy quintus what then shall be the decision which we pronounce marcus i think we should seek the boundaries which socrates has laid down in relation to this question and abide by them quintus there cannot be a better proposal my brother and now you are employing the terms of civil justice and laws on which topics i am waiting for a lecture from you for the subject is particularly important as i have often heard you say and certainly we have sufficiently established the principle we have been discussing and proved that to live according to nature is the highest good that is to lead a life regulated by conscience and conformed to virtue and temperance and to follow nature and to live according to her law that is to say as far as depends on the person himself to omit nothing to secure nature in the attainment of those things which she requires this surely is the most lawful and virtuous mode of living as to the discussions of philosophers i know not whether we shall ever arrive at a decision but we certainly shall not do so in our present conference at least if we prosecute our original design and come to the practical investigation of the civil law as established in our country atticus i however turned aside to this digression very willingly quintus we shall have an opportunity of renewing this subject on some future occasion let us at present keep to what we began with as especially since this discussion respecting the chief good and evil has no reference to our present subject marcus what you say my quintus is most wise and excellent for what has hitherto been said by me is derived from the very heart of philosophy 
but you perhaps wish to have the laws of some particular state discussed quintus i am not anxious to hear of the laws of lycurgus or of solon or of charondas or zalicos nor of our roman twelve tables nor of popular decrees but i expect you to describe in this day's conversation not only the laws fitted for all nations but also the rules and maxims of conduct that may apply to individuals marcus and indeed what you expect my quintus harmonizes very well with the subjects of our present discussion and i wish that it were within my abilities to do justice to it but the real state of the case is that since law ought to be both a correctress of vice and a recommender of virtue the principles on which we direct our conduct ought to be drawn from her and thus it comes to pass wisdom is the mother of all the virtuous arts from the love of which the greeks have composed the word philosophy and which is beyond all contradiction the richest the brightest and the most excellent of the gifts which the gods have bestowed on the life of mankind for wisdom alone has taught us among other things the most difficult of all lessons namely to know ourselves a precept so forcible and so comprehensive that it has been attributed not to a man but to the god of delphi himself for he who knows himself must in the first place be conscious that he is inspired by a divine principle and he will look upon his rational part as a resemblance to some divinity consecrated within him and will always be careful that his sentiments as well as his external behaviour be worthy of so inestimable a gift of god and after he has thoroughly examined himself and tested himself in every way he will become aware what signal advantages he has received from nature at his entrance into life and with what infinite means and appliances he is furnished for the attainment and acquisition of wisdom since in the very beginning of all things he has as it were the intelligible principles of things delineated as it were on his mind and soul by the enlightening assistance of which and the guidance of wisdom he sees that he shall become a good and consequently a happy man for what can be described or conceived more truly happy than the state of that man whose mind having attained to an exact knowledge and perception of virtue has entirely discarded all obedience to and indulgence of the body and has trampled on voluptuousness as a thing unbecoming the dignity of his nature and has raised himself above all fear of death or pain who maintains a benevolent intercourse with his friends and has learnt to look upon all who are united to him by nature as his kindred who has learnt to preserve piety and reverence towards the gods and pure religion and who has sharpened and improved the perceptions of his mind as well as of his eyesight to choose the good and reject the evil which virtue from its foreseeing things is called prudence when this man shall have surveyed the heavens the earth and the seas and studied the nature of all things 
and informed himself from whence they have been generated to what state they will return and of the time and manner of their dissolution and has learnt to distinguish what parts of them are mortal and perishable and what divine and eternal when he shall have almost attained to a knowledge of that being who superintends and governs these things and shall look on himself as not confined within the walls of one city or as the member of any particular community but as a citizen of the whole universe considered as a single commonwealth amid such a grand magnificence of things as this and such a prospect and knowledge of nature what a knowledge of himself o ye immortal gods will a man arrive at that is the warning of the pythian apollo and how insignificant will he then esteem how thoroughly will he contemn and despise those things which by vulgar minds are held in the highest admiration and all these acquirements he will secure and guard as by a sort of fence by the knowledge how to distinguish truth from falsehood and by a certain science and art of reasoning which teaches him to know what consequences follow from premises and what proposition is contrary to another and when such a person feels that nature has designed him for civil society he will not rest contented with these subtle disquisitions alone but will put in practice that more comprehensive and continuous eloquence by which he may be able to govern nations to establish laws to punish malefactors to defend the honest part of mankind and publish the praises of great men by which also he may fitly put forth precepts of safety and panegyrics of virtue in a way suited to persuade his countrymen by which also he may be able to rouse them to the practice of virtue and turn them from wickedness to comfort the afflicted and in fine to immortalize the wise consultations and noble actions of the brave and wise and to punish the shame and infamy of wicked men by handing them down in undying records and of all these important things which are perceived to be in man by those who wish to attain a knowledge of themselves the parent and nurse is wisdom atticus you have given us a very dignified and just eulogium on her but on what do you mean your remarks to bear marcus in the first place my atticus i mean them to bear on those jurisprudential topics which we shall hereafter discuss which are well nigh as important as the preceding for these moral principles we have already developed would not be so grand and so interesting if the sources from which they arise were not also full of sublimity and beauty and for the rest i prosecute this inquiry with pleasure and i trust with justice for i cannot with any conscience pass over in silence that study to which i am devoted and which has made me all that i am atticus you speak truly and as that study deserves and it was as you say proper to do so in this discussion end of book one recording in memory of mitchell edwards